Well, this morning, I'm a privilege once again to be able to open the Word with you and continue our study through the Bible that we uh, have been on for quite some time. This morning, we come to the little book of Zephaniah, often confused with Zechariah, but we won't be there for quite a while. Zephaniah, small three-chapter book in your Old Testament. Next week, God willing, we'll be having communion and testimony time together, a very special and important time for our church, and I look forward to sharing that with you and um, all of us together. Last week, just as a quick reminder, and maybe for those who weren't here, we, uh, we looked last week at the amazing life of young King Josiah, who came out of a terrible background, uh, pagan grandfather and father, <clears throat> came from the, the worst imaginable upbringing, and yet we see that uh, in, his, in his teenage years, it says that he began to seek the Lord. And we followed through how he grew in his knowledge and understanding of God, and as he gained more and more understanding and insight into what was right, he lived that out, and he kept taking little steps for God. And um, through his simple faith and obedience, he brought about tremendous reforms in the land of Judah. He destroyed the idols and the places of idol worship. He repaired and restored the temple of God, which had been sitting in um, disrepair for a very long time. And uh, you remember that while they were there in the temple doing the repairs, they discovered, hidden away somewhere in there, uh, the book of the law. We would call it today the Word of God or the Bible. Of course, that's not uh, what they called it then. They didn't have all of it, obviously, back in the uh, you know, 650 B.C. or so when this was taking place. But they found the writings of Moses, <clears throat> the, the king and it's, it's hard to imagine that even the, the priests and the scribes in that day uh, had gone without a copy of the Word of God for a long time. And they found this, and they took it to young King Josiah, and he had never in his lifetime seen or held a copy of God's Word. Boy, we take that for granted, don't we? I do remember, I think I shared with you one time when I was young, I uh, came home from a church service and honestly didn't mean to do this. I wasn't even thinking, but I dropped my, I threw my Bible on the floor. I think I was, I needed my hands free to do something. And uh, boy, my mom reminded me uh, very quickly in a very real way um, that I still kind of feel today. Uh, you know, you, you don't treat God's word that way. And she wasn't talking about the leather or the paper or the ink. There's nothing inspired about that. Uh, it's like this wedding ring. You know, the gold in this doesn't really mean anything. It's what this represents. And so we know that God's word is truth. And, you know, we, uh, <clears throat> I think we um, take it so for granted today that we can go online and we can order uh, Bible after Bible after Bible. I don't know how many I have at home Shamefully, I probably have far too many. Um, but here in this day, young Josiah heard for the first time, read to him from uh, the book of the law. And when he heard it, he fell under such powerful conviction that it says he tore his robes. It says he humbled himself before God and he wept. Interesting. I've, I've always found that interesting. No one told him to do that. But when the Spirit of God truly moves in you through the Word, it is a powerful thing. I remember years and years and years ago, I, I think we were married, um, just married. <clears throat> and this was back in the day when uh, if you wanted to listen to an audio Bible, you had to buy it on cassette tape. And to get the whole Bible literally was like this suitcase thing. <laughs> that you carried around, and I had it in my car and uh, was one day heading out to Anderson Memorial Hospital. They were one of our clients, and on the way there, I was listening, just listening to a cassette, 
um, just, just simply hearing the Word of God read. And it was so powerful in that moment for me. I remember I could probably take you to within 50 yards of where I was on the road. <clears throat> I had to pull off the road because I was just, I, tears were flowing under the power of just hearing the Word of God. And so they found the word of God, they read it to the king, and then the, the king took the word of God and he called all the leaders and all the people together and he read God's word to them. <clears throat> and he declared in front of all of them that he was committing that day to live for God and he was calling all of them to make a commitment to live for God. <clears throat> and powerful change uh, came about in the land because of this one young man's commitment to the Lord. He also, we're told, went up north um, out of the land of Judah, across the border into Israel, <clears throat> up north, and called them as well to repent and to turn back to God. Now, you may have been wondering when uh, I mentioned that last week, how in the world uh, he could have spoken to the people in Israel because I had just finished saying that the Assyrians had already come and obliterated Israel. They had uh, destroyed the land and they had carried the people off into captivity. But here's what the Bible and other historical writings tell us. They tell us that the Assyrians came and took the Israelites off into captivity, but they did not take them all. They intentionally left some Israelites there in the land, especially in the capital city of Samaria. Now, why would they do that? Well, the answer to that question is going to become, I think, very real to us when we uh, finally reach the New Testament one day. You remember in the New Testament especially in the Gospels, in the life of Christ, we hear a lot about the city of Samaria. And you remember in the New Testament, every time you hear about Samaria, it's with a negative tone. The Jews hated the Samaritans. This is why Jesus told the classic parable of the good Samaritan. And I can tell you the Jews never used uh, that adjective to describe a, a, a Samaritan. Um, they were hated. In fact, the Jews would not even allow the dust of Samaria to get on the soles of their sandals. Now, wh why? Have you ever wondered in the New Testament how that came about? How did the Samaritans, how did the city of Samaria become such a hated, despised place? Well, if we back up from the life of Christ about 650 years to where we are now. The Assyrians carted off the people of Israel from the land, from the capital city of Samaria, but they left some people there. And then we're told that they sent some foreigners, many foreigners, into Israel, into the city of Samaria, to intermingle with those people and intermarry with them. This was a devil-inspired long-term plot to try and um, sort of, uh, what would you say, dilute the, the pure bloodline of God's people so that over time the, Israelite, the uh, Israelites would basically uh, be wiped out and their true bloodline would no longer exist. And so because of that, because now Israel and Samaria had now, over the years, been turned into this place of sort of a mixed culture. They were now hated by the Jews, and they were hated by the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So that's a little backstory on where the Samaritans came from and why they were so despised. Do you see, I don't have time to spend any more on that, but, but do you see... Uh, can I just say the, the sickeningly brilliant subtlety of Satan and how he stops at nothing to try and cut off the bloodline to the Messiah. This was another one of those, I mean, if you don't dig, you won't see this, 
But it's so clear from historical accounts, this is another attempt by Satan to destroy the seed that we looked at in Genesis 3.15. Well, while King Josiah was busy beginning to seek the Lord, beginning to destroy the pagan idols, there was a prophet on the scene at that same time. He was warning God's people of impending judgment, and he was pleading with them to repent and to turn back to the Lord. His name was Zephaniah. Again, I'm trying to teach through the Bible in chronological order, and I told you this section of the Bible just gets very, very complicated to try to put all of these pieces in place chronologically. Uh, And so I've put some things together for you this morning. Hopefully that will help. First, let's read, if you have it, are you in Zephaniah yet? Need some more time? Zephaniah 1.1. Now remember, in these Old Testament books, in the writings of the prophets, usually the first verse of the first chapter is key. We don't see it that way. It seems boring to us, but we learn a lot of information in these opening verses, just like we did in Isaiah a while back. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. In the days of who? Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now you see that one phrase there is incredibly helpful for us. Um, Zephaniah is telling the readers of that day, and God preserved this for us today to help us understand where Zephaniah fits into the picture and the timeline. So I, I put together something, I tried to keep it really simple, uh, go ahead and show that first slide. I don't know if you can... <clears throat> yeah, we need, we need new projectors, don't we, David? <laughs> we were just talking about this. Okay, pretend that you can see that, because, man, I put a lot of work into that. <laughs> Doggone it. <laughs> it looks so brilliant on my monitor, you wouldn't believe. Um, so anyway, there's a, there's a timeline the blue part is uh, the, the years of the divided kingdom, and then the green is uh, when the exile actually happened for the people of Judah. So I've listed uh, all the lines that you see on the lower left or all the prophets we've already gone through. And then the ones in yellow, it, we see King Josiah. He had a very brief life. Uh, and then below him, the prophet Zephaniah, and we kind of see his lifespan. You can maybe see or not see, that that crosses over into other prophets as well. Jeremiah also lived uh, a little bit during the time of Josiah. In fact, Jeremiah, we'll see, sent Josiah a letter pleading with him not to go to war against um, the Egyptian pharaoh who was passing through. Jeremiah heard a word from the Lord, sent it to Josiah and said, please don't do this. Unfortunately, this was the one big mistake Josiah made. He went uh, to fight against uh, the king, and he was killed in that battle. So Jeremiah crosses over, Hezekiah is coming up, Ezekiel, Daniel, and so on. Now go to the next slide. I've added a couple of events at the bottom. Uh, The one there on the uh, lower left is when the book of the law was found. We just talked about that. And then a few years later, in 586 B.C., is when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Then go to the third timeline. And I've added some other historical events. I think it's helpful for us sometimes to see when extra-biblical events took place uh, in history. It just helps us place things like the founding of Rome there, the founding of Japan as a nation. Uh, Aesop's fables were written during the period of the exile. So you can tell your kids that next nighttime story you have. Hey, Pastor Phil said, and they'll be like, please stop, stop. (laughs) Just the story. Uh, False teeth were invented in Italy right about that time. Lots Lots of important, interesting things. So the important piece here is verse 1 tells us when um, when Josiah, uh, when Zephaniah ministered, and he ministered when Josiah was king. 
Now, it's possible. I don't know this for sure. None of us do, but it is possible. I would even say likely that these powerful prophecies that Zephaniah brought through the direction of God contributed to the reform that Josiah was able to bring about. As Josiah is going around and clearing the land of the idols, the pagan places of worship, and he's calling the people back to God, Zephaniah was prophesying at that time. He was warning the people that judgment is coming if they don't turn back. So that's a bit of the time frame. Now, there are two main themes running through this little book of Zephaniah. The first one is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This is a phrase we see over and over again in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord. Ezekiel talks about it. We've studied Joel and Amos. Joel mentions it numerous times uh, in his little book, and it's mentioned multiple times in the New Testament as well. However, in these three short chapters of Zephaniah, he refers to this day of the Lord 20 times, 20 times. He'll sometimes call it the day of the Lord. Sometimes he'll just call it the day or that day or a day, but it all ties into this thing that is coming that the people need to be alert to. Now, when we read about the day of the Lord, it's not referring to a 24-hour day as we would think of when we hear the word day. Now, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord usually refers to a time when God is going to bring judgment on those who have turned away from him. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord usually refers to the coming of Christ, that day, that period of time when God's ultimate purposes will be fulfilled and his reign will be established forever. So the day of the Lord can refer to God's coming judgment or to God's restoration and his eternal reign. And Zephaniah talks about both in this little book. He talks about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment that is coming up in just a few years for these people of Judah. And we'll see, he talks about the day of the Lord, that final day when Christ will come and set up his kingdom and everything will be made right. So the first theme in Zephaniah is the day of the Lord, but there's another theme that runs through this book, and it's God's undying love for his people. And it's here that I want to really focus our time today. So briefly, let's look at this. Chapter 1, there's really no need for me to spend time you know, diving deep into the judgments that God said were going to come on the people of Judah, because we've already studied and looked at uh, and labored through all of the judgments of God in all these Old Testament books. But basically, the reason God is going to have to, you know, was going to have to bring judgment on Judah is because even though King Josiah had brought about revival and reform in the land, we looked at that last week, such a beautiful thing to see, but we sort of need to add a comma after everything we talked about last week, and we need to add, however, the people soon returned to their sinful ways. And once again, we see the cyclical pattern that we've seen throughout the Old Testament, over and over again. And may I be so bold as to remind all of us that it's the same pattern you and I wrestle with in our lives, if we're honest. We wrestle with devotion to God one day, following him with boldness and confidence and faith, a commitment to, to die for him as Peter said he would. And yet we turn around and find ourselves cold and indifferent or wounded and out of the game, sidetracked, on the sidelines, no longer 
having a heart for God like we used to have. Is that not true of our lives? Now, the more we walk with Christ, the more decades that go by, the more miles that you get on your odometer of life and on mine, we should see that cycle weakening over time. So while a a zoomed-in look at the graph of our life will have a lot of this, if you zoom out and look at the span of your life, what we should see is, well, I'll do it in your direction, starting here as a new believer in Christ, we should see it doing this in our faith, in our trust with God. Even though there will be dips and rises all along the way. This same cycle that these people struggled with back then, we, we must be careful not to distance ourselves from that. We must be careful not to sit in a position of sort of an ivory tower looking back at them and saying, boy, what a bunch of losers. If I had seen the miracles they saw, I would never doubt God. You sure about that? Because I bet you've seen a bunch of things that God has done, and yet it's never quite enough, is it? It's never quite enough for this old flesh. This stuff rises up again and again in our life, and and it just pulls us away from God. So it's this constant daily battle that the Apostle Paul talked about. I beat myself into submission. I die daily. I crucify the flesh. That's not a one-time thing. That's a daily thing. In fact, sometimes it's an hour-by-hour thing. And that's okay. It's part of the battle. Don't be discouraged that you're in that battle. Be concerned if you're not. If you're not fighting that war, if you're not feeling that pull, that's when you should be concerned because you're just sleepwalking through life. So the reason that God is going to have to bring judgment on Judah is because although As I said, Josiah had helped bring about this spiritual reform. The people turned back years later to their old uh, ways. And you read through Zephaniah chapter 1, and you hear these terrifying words in this prophecy that God is going to utterly destroy everything in the land because his people have not only turned away from him, but as we've seen in so many of the other little prophetic books we've looked at already, the people have been treating their fellow man with cruel injustice. This is something God takes very seriously. When you and I, as followers of Christ, rip somebody off in a business deal, God takes that very seriously. When you and I are dishonest with others about some small matter, God takes that very seriously. When the poor in the land, the widows, the orphans, the the homeless, when they are marginalized by people, God takes that very seriously. And this is what was happening in the day here. God's people had grown rich. They had all kinds of things, but they had had gotten there on the backs of less fortunate people. And so this impending day of the Lord is coming. And it's summarized. Let me just read um, verses 14 to 16 so you can get kind of a, a flavor of what God is saying through Zephaniah. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. Now, at this point, it was more than 20-something years away. So, you see, be careful when God says, yes, I will answer your prayer, but it might be in your grandchild's lifetime. We can't handle that. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. In other words, they'll be terrified. Verse 15, that day. Now here he he begins with that day and a day. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. And he goes on to warn them that in the the next few verses, that no matter what kind of defense they think they can put up against this, nothing is going to prevent God's judgment from coming. 
It says neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them in the day of God's wrath. And I want to just reemphasize this for all of us today. In our culture today, we don't talk about high towers and fortified cities and strong walls and these kinds of things. That's not the terminology that we use, but these people were convinced that they were safe from God's judgment because they had created a secure environment for themselves. You know what we do today? Today, people look at their bank account and their 401k and they say, oh man, I got it made. Nothing's going to rock my boat. Oh boy. You putting your trust in that, are you? Uh, Some of you are putting your trust in a relationship. Putting your trust in your spouse. They're always going to be there for me. Are they? Well, I certainly hope so. But life takes some wild turns sometimes. So what happens when that proverbial rug is pulled out beneath you? If you've been leaning on anything but God, you're going to fall hard. Some people depend on their intellectual ability, their education, their health. On and on and on you can go. You see, we do the same things today. We have idols in our lives today that we look to instead of looking to God. Are you this morning, right now, trusting in anything in this world? If you are, I would urge you to take inventory of that today before this day is over between you and God and figure out what you need to do to let that go, to turn it over to him and say, God, if you take this thing that I treasure, if you take this from me, I will still trust you. I will still love you. It's important to settle those matters before the day of wrath comes, before the storm comes. Well, why? Why, why is God saying all these things? Why are these things going to happen? Verse 17 sums it up. Because they have sinned against the Lord. There it is. See, you need to understand, again, critics cherry-pick things from the Bible. They'll go through the Old Testament, and they'll, they'll take out all the places like these uh, verses 14 to 16 that we just read, and they'll, they'll kind of mash them up together in this one horrific-sounding tirade from an angry God. And they say, look at God. Whoever uh, could imagine that this is a God of love? But what they leave out are all the years and years and years and decades and generations when God called and called and called and begged his people to come back to them. And they said, nope, we're fine. Leave us alone. God's judgments, God's punishments are never unjust. They are never undeserved. There's not a one of us There's not a one of us who will be able to stand before God one day and say, I did not deserve what you brought into my life. Not one of us. His discipline is always fair. It is always right, including what we just read. All those horrible things that are coming. God says, I'm going to wipe everything off the map because of your sin. Somehow in our in our inability to come to terms with that, to be at peace with that, God is still right in his judgment. Whether you and I can figure it out or not, God is God. As Isaiah said, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. Chapter 2 goes on to say that God's judgment is not only coming for Judah, it's eventually coming for all nations. Now, quick reminder in our studies already, we've seen a lot about Nineveh going all the way back to Jonah. We saw recently in one of the prophets that God had said again that Assyria and its wicked capital city of Nineveh would be destroyed because of their violence, because of their sin. 
And in chapter 2, verse 13 of Zephaniah here, he lets everyone know that God hasn't forgotten about that. Verse 13, and he will stretch out his hand against the north to destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. He goes on in verse 15. Now here's the arrogance. This is the rejoicing city. Now they've, So they've been destroyed. God is sort of moving ahead now in time. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. She has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. So now this is, this is the mighty Nineveh. It's now been turned into a wasteland. And everybody who has walked by up until, you know, the mid-1940s uh, when it was rediscovered, um, they walk by and they say, this? This was Nineveh? The great city? <laughs> Doesn't look like much to me. And you see, God's prediction that this city was going to be destroyed was unthinkable to the people in those times. It would be like saying, America the Great is going to be obliterated from coast to coast. All of its mighty military power is going to be wiped out. It will become a wasteland. People would go, America? No, not us. We're strong. We've got it figured out. We're never going to fall. I could give you a list of countries that I have watched just in my lifetime, never mind all of history, where the people were great patriots. They were strong defenders of their land. And they were told, socialism is coming, communism is coming, God's judgment is coming, you're going to fall. Not us. Not us. Look at the people fleeing from South Africa now, where I used to live. <coughs> because it's turned into a literal hellhole. The same thing can happen on a broad scale in America. Do not be fooled. And the same thing can happen in your individual life and mine. Don't ever think you are secure against a holy God. Well, in the last chapter, God returns his focus now to Jerusalem. And he gets very specific with them about their sin, just in case anybody at some point in history wants to raise a hand in class and go, um, God, excuse me, I don't think you were just in doing this. Let's look at some of these quickly. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the, to the oppressing city. Now look at this list of things in verse 2 that, that she has done, that the people have done, speaking collectively of them. She has not what? She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. And she has not drawn near to whose God? Her God. By the way, those are four little bullet points you might want to jot down on a card and ask yourself on some regular interval, am I failing to do these things in my life that God has called me to do, that he has called his people to do? They refuse to obey his voice. They refuse to receive correction. Hey, gang, can I just encourage you right now? I don't care if you're 15 or 95. Always purpose in your heart the rest of your life to be a person who can willingly receive correction. We bristle against that, don't we? Well, who do you think you are to tell me? Well, maybe, maybe if you just calm down a little bit, take a breath, and take in what the person is telling you, there might just be a kernel of wisdom in there or correction 
or encouragement or direction that God wants to plant into your heart. I've received some correction from friends over the years. And I look back and saw I needed every bit of it. And this corruption that God is calling out in the land, it's not just the people. It's not just sort of in the streets. This goes all the way to the highest levels. It goes all the way to the top, verses 3 and 4. God is now calling people out uh, in, in the specific groups that they're in. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone until morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Wow! And her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law, or the law of God is what that's saying there. Now, I know, thankfully, we can't imagine any of that taking place today in our nation or our world. Thankfully, all of our leaders have got it put together. They're all following God. I mean, this reads like 2023. But no matter how sinful the world becomes, God pauses here in this prophecy to interject something about his own character and give his wayward people um, a benchmark, a plumb line by which to compare themselves just in case they think that they're actually doing pretty good in God's sight. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. See, you need to remember, no matter how badly this world may get off track, no matter how badly the world may treat you, no matter how much injustice might be sent your way, you can get up every morning and go to the one who will never fail you, who will never do any wrong. Whatever you're going through, he is in your midst. This is a beautiful reminder. It says the wicked have no shame. Boy, are we seeing this more and more. Wicked people are well, are coming out of the closet, figuratively and literally, in the streets, parading things in the streets that just a decade ago would have been unthinkable in a public street in America. But look how God sums them up at the end of verse 7. Verse 7 says, I said, surely you will fear me. Now, this is God sort of... He's sort of playing a role here. And he's, he's like imagining what should have happened. He says, surely you will fear me. You'll receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But, but they, the people, rose early and corrupted all their deeds. You look through the Bible at any time it says someone rose early. It's a very interesting study. God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him on an altar to me. You know what the next verse says? So Abraham arose early the next morning and gathered the wood for the sacrifice. Wow. It's a sign of intent. It's a sign of someone who's on a mission, either for right or for wrong. And it's saying here, man, these people... They set their alarm clock extra early just so they could have more hours in the day to do wrong. There are people like that still in this world, and there always will be. Psalm 106.43 says this, Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin. I know people 
like that this very morning. It's heartbreaking. Well, we kind of wind this down with the last part of chapter 3. I think we all know what it's like to live in a world like has been described here, a world where evil and godlessness abound, where the corruption goes all the way to the top, even into the churches, the church leaders, a world where nations refuse to do those four things that God mentioned earlier. They refuse to obey God's voice. They refuse to receive instruction. They refuse to trust in him. They refuse to draw near to him. And surely, at this point, I mean, if you're, if you're anywhere near the midpoint of life, surely you, like me, long for something better. You long for something better than we see in this world. Surely we all long for that other day of the Lord. That day when Christ will come and reign in perfect righteousness, where sin and sickness and sorrow and death will be no more. The faithful remnant, those who continued to follow God in Zephaniah's day, they longed for that too. And God gives them and he gives us a glimpse of what that will be like. And I want to wind it down with these verses. And I want to say to you, whatever you may be going through today, whatever struggle or fears or doubts or hardships you're facing, I want you to lean in right now. I want you to hear these life-giving words in the closing verses of this book. When that great and final day of the Lord comes Those who have remained faithful to him through it all are going to be gathered together in the most glorious, unifying move of God that has ever been seen. Verse 9 of chapter 3. For then I will restore to the people a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. I don't have time to really dig into this. You can do it yourself, but, but this to me, ties all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 when it says that the whole earth had one language and one speech, but they got together and said, let's build a tower to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And they overstepped their bounds. They got arrogant and cocky and thought they could be equal with God. And it says God came down and he destroyed what they were doing and he confused their languages. And from that day until this, you and I have been living in a world of confused languages. I don't mean that so much literally in spoken word, but I just mean person to person. There has been unending conflict and confusion between all of us as people. You and I struggle with that in this church body sometimes. We struggle to have perfect communication with each other, perfect union with each other like we would want to have. So this is what God is going to do in verse 9 is, is in a sense a reverse tower of Babel. He's going to restore all his faithful ones. He's going to unite them together to speak one language and we will praise him with one voice and we will serve him as one in perfect unity. But you, you kind of think, how is that going to be possible if you're looking through the lens of The world today, how is that going to be possible? It's going to be possible because all sin and shame and guilt will be wiped away and the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. For time's sake, I'll just encourage you on your own to read verses 11 to 15. Some beautiful words in there. God is saying that on that day, you're not going to be shamed for any of the wrong deeds that you've done. He's going to wipe all the shame away. And he's going to bring together a meek and humble people, and they will trust in the name of the Lord. And he tells you to sing, to rejoice, to be glad because of what God is doing. Why? Because, verse 15, he's taken away your judgments. He's taken away your judgments. And that all happened on a hill called Calvary, when Jesus hung and died for you. He took away your shame. He took away your judgments. 
He's preparing that day for all who love him and have put their faith in his son. And then we come to this verse I want to end on, verse 17, which is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee. He is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over thee with singing. What an extraordinary picture this is. Has anyone ever written you a love song? Nobody's ever written me one, by the way. I don't want one from you. I love you, bro, but that's just not going to feel right. It's not going to feel right. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, imagine somebody sitting down and writing a love song for you. Wow. Would that not be incredible? You know what, folks? You know what? That's what God does for all who are in Christ. All those who have repented of their sin and received forgiveness and redemption and salvation offered through his son. God sings over you with joy. He takes delight in you. What an incredible thought. Think of all the heartache that these people God is addressing here. Think of all the heartache they had put God through. For years, for generations, they had turned their back on him and they had left him to go and pursue other gods and give their love to those false gods. And yet through it all, God's love for them remained steadfast. Jeremiah 31, 3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God longs for his children to come home to him. He longs to gather them around him so that he can shower them with love and burst into songs of joy that they're together again. It's like, it's like every time I read this, I think of a loving father who is just busting with excitement because he can hardly wait to see the looks on his children's faces when they open their presents on Christmas morning. This is how God feels about you if you are in Christ. I ask you, tell me where else in the universe can you find such a God? Yes, that first day of the Lord is coming when all the earth will be judged. And folks, I tell you as I close, if you are not in Christ, that is going to be a dark and dreadful day for you. But it doesn't have to be. God has made a way. All through this little book, I didn't have time to pursue it, but all through, woven into these words of judgment, God says, seek me, turn to me, come to me. He's saying that to you today if you never have. He's giving you an opportunity to be untouched in that first terrifying day of judgment, but to be filled with joy and gladness on that final day of the Lord. If you have repented of your sins and received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you can rejoice this morning in the reminder of the joys that are awaiting you on that glorious day when you will be with him in his presence forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a God of justice. Maybe sometimes we wish that you were only a God of blessings and goodness and kindness and love. Never a God of justice. But Lord, we could never trust a God like that. We could never trust a God who did not punish sin. Because, Lord, justice means that everyone gets what they have earned, what they deserve. Those who've turned their back on you and run headlong into sin, those who've rejected you again and again, 
the justice they get is going to be exactly what they have asked for. For all those who have repented and turned to Christ for salvation, Lord, amazingly, the justice we're going to get is the joy of being in your presence forevermore. I thank you, God, that there is a day coming, that great unifying day, when you will take all the mixed-up mess in this world that man has created and you will bring us together with one voice to praise you with one heart forever. Lord, I pray no one this morning would walk away from this time ignoring your call to repentance. God, draw the lost to you right now, I pray. And help all of us who are saved to rejoice with a greater joy than we've ever known at anticipating that great and final day of the Lord when we will be with him forever. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness and goodness to us despite ourselves. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. I want